For a status, I am Malihe Razazan. At the Arab Spring's hopeful start, Alia Malik returned to Damascus to reclaim her grandmother's apartment, which had been lost to her family since Hafez al-Assad came to power in 1970. Its loss was central to her parents' decision to make their lives in the U.S. So I was my grandmother's first grandchild, and I had a very close relationship with her until I was six when tragedy strikes and she's taken away from me. Let's just put it like that. And I had always been moved by stories about her. There was something about the stories about her in which I recognized something of myself in them. The home that was our country is a personal journey that shines a delicate but piercing light on Syrian history, society, and politics. It covers modern Syria from the last of the Ottoman days to the present, and it weaves the lives of her family members with the geopolitical economic history of Syria. Alia Malik is an award-winning journalist and civil rights lawyer and author of A Country Called Amrika, U.S. History Retold Through Arab-American Lives. I spoke with Alia about her new book, The Home That Was Our Country, A Memoir of Syria, and asked her why she decided to write about Syria's history through her family's experiences. Basically, as somebody who is Arab in this world and now Syrian in this world, I've long been accustomed to being critical of the way the communities that I belong to have been covered. And when everything started to happen in the Middle East, the so-called Arab Spring, generally and then also specifically in Syria, I wanted to be back in the region because I felt that I had, quite frankly, kind of an access to tell the story in a way that wouldn't fall into the same sorts of traps that we see when people cover the Middle East or cover Syria. And that was why I went over there in large part because I wanted to be one of the voices that was involved in, you know, chronicling what was happening at the moment and in telling and in creating this knowledge that we would have of the people and of the region in that moment. And the approach came about because in my first book, in America, I found that specifically when you write about communities that have long been sort of maligned in the American imagination and consciousness, that the way to push back on that is not necessarily through polemical writing or even academic writing, even though my work rests very much on the amazing scholarship that has been created about the Middle East. But there's something about good storytelling that allows even a reader who might be disposed to not liking your subject to kind of be able to access and enter the story. And also for people who don't have bad intentions but don't know how to approach a story that seems so complicated, that there's something about good storytelling that allows people to have that access. And the choice to use my own family, because Enrique is not about me or about my family. I found different Arab Americans to share their stories for these specific moments of time that Amrika stopped in. The decision to use my family was not my original desire. I wanted to use the building that my grandmother had lived in and where we still own this home as a way to introduce all kinds of characters to readers. But with a lot of persuasion from mentors and friends, it seemed to me that coalescing around one family made the most sense. And since my connection to the building was my grandmother, and I had always wanted to write about her, that it seemed that, you know, the way to be able to tell this wider, broader sweep of Syrian history would be to use myself, use my mother, use my grandmother, and then use her father, and even to some extent his mother. So it kind of almost goes back to my great-great-grandmother a little bit. And that was how the project came about and why the approach. And also, I should just say that I had long wanted to write a book on Syria and to specifically write about my grandmother. But the reality of the publishing world is that nobody really cared about a book about Syria. There was no way to get a contract for, I mean, not that I had tried, but, you know, it was kind of dead on arrival to be able to to do this kind of book. The ironic and tragic reality 
is, is that there was only a market for this book once the country began to fall apart. And general history or politics or coverage journalism, I mean, focuses often on the so-called important people, the people who create the headlines, the people who choose to use weapons to affect change. I mean, that's how journalism and history books often go. I just wanted something very different for the history that I wanted to write about Syria. And women are so often not a part of the story, and when they're part of the story, it's in really tired ways. These are conscious decisions on my part, yes. The topic of Syria and the discussion around the war in Syria has become extremely polarizing. I know people who've told me they're not going to talk about Syria anymore, and these are academics who've spent most of their adult life researching and writing about Syria because of the whole toxic environment, especially on social media. And the Syrian people are missing in most of these discussions. I was wondering if, if this fractured landscape in any way was one of your considerations as how you would go about writing the book. No, I was going to write the book that I wanted to write in the way that I wanted to write it. And I think if you become responsive to all those voices on social media, which is not the real world, obviously, (laughs) to some extent, I think that can be very crippling for a writer. And that's not the way I work. As for the debates that you're referring to, they have been, well, they've been quite telling. And I think they have revealed who has sort of a principled approach, and I don't mean this in a moralistic way, I mean like actually has principles that they follow and how they look at these events that are happening versus those who don't. It has been distressing and depressing to see people who have taken well-researched stances on other geopolitical situations not have the same clarity when it comes to Syria. But that doesn't inform how I do my work. My fidelity is to the story and to treating it with as much empathy and skepticism as I would any other story. You were born in the U.S. and your parents gave you and your three siblings Arabic names because (laughs) they thought they were going to go back and live in Syria after your father finished his education. Your father came to the U.S. to go to medical school and your mother joined him in Baltimore after they got married in 1974, but it never happened. So growing up in the U.S., what did Syria mean to you? Well, I think part of it was that there was never a finality to that decision. It took a long time before my father fully came around to the idea that we weren't going back. And there were you know, specific things that happened that were directly related to the nature of the Syrian state that precluded our going back. But what it meant was that, and I think this is probably true of a lot of other diaspora American communities is that there was always this sort of shadow on our lives in the United States. There was this other place called Syria, which had these alternate versions of ourselves where my parents would not have been foreigners, where my parents would have belonged, where we would have belonged and not have had hyphenated identities and where we wouldn't have had to navigate the kinds of tensions that come up out of the immigration, immigrant experience in the United States, where for, I think, points, my parents probably fantasized that we would have been more obedient children had we been in Syria and not in the United States. It was a place of longing for both my parents, and that longing really gets passed on to the children, and in my case, being the eldest who had spent the most time initially in Syria when we were always going back and forth, I had my own kind of longing but also it means a, a kind of nostalgia, and nostalgia can be very deceptive. You can remember a place very differently than what its actual reality is, which was much more the case for my father, who came before the Assad regime, but much less for my mother, who began to see what was happening in the country. It's difficult, and I don't think it's obviously not unique to being Syrian-American. I think there are a lot of communities that probably understand what that experience is like. You went with your mother to Syria for many summers before you went there alone Mm -hmm. for the first time when you were 17 years old. Your last trip to Syria was in April of 2011, soon after the start of the uprising. You said, I moved to Syria on Monday, April 25th, 2011. In February of that year, school children in the southern city of Dar'a, near the Jordanian border, had scrawled graffiti mimicking the slogans that had been chanted in the Arab countries that has risen up against authoritarian rules. 
Though it was just a prank, the regime responded by arresting the boys, aged 10 to 15, and torturing them. Grown men beat them, burned their bodies, and pulled out their fingernails. That's end of quote. Seven years later, no one really remembers that peaceful uprising against Bashar al-Assad. And also nobody remembers the brutal response, the regime's response. Can you give us a sense of how you and people around you reacted to these protests? You were in Damascus at that time. I think people consciously want us to forget it. I think the Assad regime from the beginning wanted to delegitimize the original stirrings. And I think a lot of the global powers would like us to forget that for many reasons. So what it was like then, different people had different reactions and sentiments. There was a lot of optimism. You know, there was some just open optimism from some quarters, maybe the younger quarters. There was cautious optimism from people who remembered and the regime, even though Bashar al-Assad is the son of Hafez al-Assad, there is a continuity to the regime. Yeah. They had very strong memories of what had happened in Hama in 1982, but also it's not like dissent has been tolerated in Syria. So obviously cautious optimism and then just caution. And then you had people who were straight up afraid because they had quite the understanding of what the regime had done, the violent measures to which it went previously to maintain its power, and also the measures that had been taken even behind the scenes under Bashar al-Assad. The prisons were full. Dissent was not tolerated. So I think there was a lot of uncertainty about what might come next. And I think a lot of people inside Syria didn't think that Syria would go as easily as Egypt did. You know, the structures of the Egyptian state were very different than those of the Syrian state. And I think people who were familiar or intimately aware or hadn't been sort of lulled into believing that Bashar al-Assad was different than his father, were very, very nervous about what might come next. Now, that being said, I don't think anybody would have foreseen that the regime, people were like, no, but they wouldn't go that far. And then they went that far and they just kept going that far. Yeah, I think people didn't foresee how far it would go. Also, because ultimately the regime has laid the ground for itself not to hold on to power, even if it's not in the short term. They have in many ways destroyed the country in their attempts to hold on to power. And so I think a lot of people didn't think they would go to those extremes. And then I think there were also several Syrians who are quite savvy as to what geopolitics look like in the region. And they knew that everybody would want a hand in that from Iran to Saudi Arabia, which had been fighting sort of proxy battles in other countries. There was no reason to think that the same wouldn't be said for Syria for the kind of jihadist vision. There was no reason to think that Syria wouldn't become a field of operation for them. Erdogan and his ambitions in Turkey and for the region and what that might mean for how porous he would allow the border to be. I mean, there were things that were obvious. It was always obvious that the rest of the region would try to play the same games that they had played in Iraq or in Yemen or in other places, that they would try the same things in Syria. And so... Even in 2011, like I said, you had open-hearted optimists, you had your cautious optimists, you had those who were cautious, and then you had those who were quite pessimistic and afraid of what could come next. Mm -hmm. But given all that, Mm -hmm. people defied Bashar al-Assad, risked Mm -hmm. their lives to protest the regime's policies, and they were asking just for reform. They really did not want to overthrow the regime in the beginning. But the peaceful protests morphed into a military conflict, which has destroyed a vast swath of the country. You write, as counterintuitive as it may be, this seemed to suit the regime. Its primary strategy thus far appeared to be to make it too perilous for Syrians to object to its rule or to get Syrians to resort to weapons. If enough did their actions would simply validate the regime's narrative that it was not opposing nonviolent Syrian protesters, but defending the country from an armed, foreign-funded terrorist insurgency. It was maddening. Those who took up weapons walked right into the trap, even if their intention were honorable. People didn't take up arms for quite a long time. Yes, of course there was a non-military option, but that would have required the world to have acted quite differently and the regime to have acted quite differently. Who enabled the regime? I mean, the regime was supported by 
initially Iran, Mm -hmm. which I believe sort of looked at what happened in the Green Revolution and how quickly they were able to put down that uprising and how quickly the world forgot about the Green Revolution. I think Iran backed the regime, Mm -hmm. and then Russia came to back the regime. And the United States decided to allow that to happen, right? And the United States decided, and the West, and not just the West, and other countries decided to back armed opposition. The opposition has many shades. People who object to the rule of Assad have many shades, and many of them were not interested in a military confrontation with the regime. When you ask me, did it have to become violent? No. If the world had treated the Syrian situation differently, it didn't have to. It became violent. I don't think we had to arrive where we are today. I don't know how useful those comments are. But I do believe that, like, for example, this started to happen in, like, a place like Italy that is known to the American imagination. Would we have just thrown fuel onto the fire? Which is what happened when you began to arm people and send them out into a confrontation with a state that has an air force, a state that is backed by two nuclear states, Iran and Russia. How are they ever going to win militarily? So once you decide to make it on the military terms, then there was sort of a condemnation of the rest of the fate of the Syrian opposition. And, you know, the United States was negotiating a deal with Iran. The United States had leverage on Iran. And the United States was also confronting Putin and the European countries with sanctions after the Ukraine. There were points of pressure, but instead it doesn't appear that they opted to utilize those. I do think Syria could have gone quite differently. And if we cared about Syrians or saw Arabs as more than just playing out some tired Sunni versus Shia script that we have adopted here in the United States, that it didn't have to go the way that it went. But that's my personal belief. On the other hand, you had Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Gulf countries, and then the Syrian opposition being based in Turkey and how Turkey enabled the flow of weapons and money and forces. Right, because they funded those parts of the opposition. What measures, what support was extended to the people that actually began this uprising, the people that began asking for a dialogue with the regime, the people that began by asking for reforms? Those parties were never strengthened. Hmm. So yes, all sides decided that they were going to pursue an armed option and condemned all of Syrians in the process. I'm speaking with Alia Malik. She's an award-winning journalist and civil rights lawyer and author of the new book, The Home That Was Our Country, A Memoir of Syria. We'll talk more after a break. For those of you joining us now, I am Malihera Zozan. My guest is Alia Malik. She's an award-winning journalist and author of the new book, The Home That Was Our Country, A Memoir of Syria. She says she always wanted the opportunity to dive into her family's history, specifically that of her great-grandfather and her grandmother, in order to better understand their lives against the backdrop of Syrian history. Something that was really interesting in your book was also about Assad regime's propaganda and PR machine. You give the example of Syria TV and other pro-regime outlets, such as Hezbollah's Manar Network and its followers, how hard they work to counter any reports hinting of a popular movement to assert more political participation or of a regime crackdown in violation of civil and human rights. Can you tell us a little bit more about how this machine 
propaganda and PR machine operate? Well, it allows people to sort of choose their truth in the same kind of way that you're seeing now happening in the United States. People choose their channel, choose their truth. You had something similar in Syria. But the motives for why people might want to cling to blatantly false narratives are different on some level than they are here in the U.S. You have to understand, people there, this regime had been in power for almost four decades. Mm-hmm. You begin to internalize a lot of the things that were said. I said this in the book, and I said this is on the talks, that totalitarian regimes don't just make the people victims, which of course they do. They turn the entire society into victims. But members of the society also become bystanders mm-hmm. in this. After 40 years, You might not be at fault, but of course we are also complicit. To believe the regime in some ways was to sort of absolve ourselves of looking away or of having been those bystanders Mm. or sort of being okay with preferring this to whatever the alternative would be, which the regime was constantly promising was this nihilistic jihadist version. Also, I think, again, people understood what this regime was like. And when the regime was saying, presenting its alternate truth, then that was also a way of hinting at what they could allow to happen, at what forces they could unleash. And what is so maddening about the propaganda game in Syria is that you kind of become a part of it because you know it's not true and you know that this is their version, but there are bigger things at stake. Being correct and knowing the truth didn't save the Syrians. It still got everybody slaughtered. And I think that's why it's an extra way to twist the knife in the back. You know, if the Syrian regime had just said, listen, we are going to clamp down violently on everybody, and this is going to be brutal, so don't even think of rising up, at least there would have been something a little bit more straightforward about that. It's the same way with the sanctimonious statements of the American State Department when they're vetoing something, some measure against Israel and the Security Council, like, it's kind of like, why can't we all just be honest about what's really going on? It was really difficult. And the whole idea of the cult of Assad and the way that it works has been written about by Lisa Whedon, who's an academic out of Chicago. She focused more on the father, but it's a really excellent book because, you know, whereas in North Korea, it appears that the people buy into the cult. In Syria, nobody buys into it, right? I mean, maybe now, after seven years of conflict, people have decided to double down. But... One of the trademarks of the Syrian propaganda machine and of the Syrian state in Syria over the years of the Assad regime was like nobody really bought into it. It was always tongue-in-cheek. People were performing, performed in the cult. It was like a charade, but without truly believing in it. There's just so much more to understanding Syria than you can get from just looking at the last six years, and which is why I go back and look at all these dynamics that the state has put in motion that have been operating on the Syrian people for 40 years. You give an example in the book about this young man, Hamza al-Khatib, and how they used his tortured body as a warning to the rest of the Syrian people, because you say they just showed his body over and over and over again on the state TV. You wondered why the regime had bothered with such a charade. You write, no one around me seemed to believe that anybody else what the regime had done to this child, even though some insinuated that he or his parents were at fault for ignoring what they should have known were possible consequences for participating in a rally would be. But you say you began to understand that we were not meant to be convinced. This was how the regime could hide a threat in plain sight. Mm-hmm. So they were using this as a way of telling people, don't think about coming out because this could be your future or your child's future? Yes. Obviously, I can't interview anybody from the regime. I don't know in their heart of hearts what they were. But yes, to me, that's how I began to understand this. And sort of looking at the way scholars have examined this, both in Syria and in other societies like this. Yes, this is my interpretation of what that entire performance was about. Your conclusion is, What happened to Hamza taught me that what many Syrians who were hesitant to confront the regime feared most was not instability or the badil, the alternative to the regime. They had, quote, whether consciously or unconsciously, understood that the regime would, 
like an abusive parent, punish them severely for their misbehavior as if Syrians demanding reforms were just children. So this is how autocrats and dictators treat their citizens. Yes, it feels like you're infantilized, right? Because nobody did anything wrong. Even me, I was working in secret. I couldn't say I wanted to openly be reporting on things because somehow then I'm misbehaving. That idea, to me, it feels very much like what it felt like to be a teenager or a preteen and understanding that there were rules to follow. They're the rules that your parents put in place for your own protection because of how they want to raise you. But the thing is, in the context of once you're an adult and you're just trying to participate in your country and in your country's future, and that that in and of itself is something that is not tolerated, you know, that is infantilizing. You also write about how they use posters and sort of slogans to instigate sectarian tensions between Muslims and Christians. And allies. And, and I mean, I think, yeah. Alia, your grandmother plays a central role in your book. Her name was Salma. She moved to Damascus in 1949 as a young bride. And you write, even though Salma came from Hama, a town many Damascans would consider provincial, she herself was quite elegant. Unlike her mother, Salma paid attention to her appearance, having always preferred her father's more glamorous world. Salma was self-assured. Her father was a rich man in Hamma and influential in the countryside. Hamma might have been small compared to Damascus, but she forever take pride in the reputation of Hamma's people for being tough and conservative, in the sense that the families were tightly knit and upheld the traditions and old ways. It gave her a swagger and earned her the description, quote, sister of men. Though she did, in fact, have plenty of brothers, it was more a way of saying that she was like a man, and she did see herself in her father's and brother's image. Tell us more about her. So I was my grandmother's first grandchild, and I had a very close relationship with her until I was six when tragedy strikes and she's taken away from me. Let's just put it like that. And I had always been moved by stories about her. Specifically, there was something, you know, she was very, I mean, she was beautiful. So, of course, there's something attractive in beauty. She had this olive skin with these very green eyes, this long, dark hair. And when you were coming into your own and coming of age, there was something about the stories about her in which I recognized something of myself in them. She was one of two sisters, but they had six brothers. And because they were women, they weren't treated the same way as their brothers or other brothers. For those that wanted educations abroad, they had educations abroad. She didn't finish high school. She didn't get to marry of her own choosing. She didn't inherit from her father's wealth. But yet she was very savvy and she had a mind for business. But the thing that I, I loved most about her, which is a quality that I think a lot of Syrians have, is that having felt excluded by certain systems, basically the socio-gender systems in Syria, she had a huge empathy for other people who were similarly situated. So she became kind of like a facilitator of affairs, first for friends, but then you know she became to have a reputation as somebody who could help people who were marginalized, and especially who came from outside of Damascus when they needed to come to the capital. And she was from Hama, and so a lot of people from Hama and surrounding villages, when they would come to Damascus and needed help in Damascus because it's the capital and it's the place where a lot of political and business affairs are conducted, she would facilitate them for her. Did they need the name of the right person to, to be able to speak to, to make their case to. I used to be delighted by these stories. And of course, these are just childhood stories when growing up. But then as I began to research her as a person, I found a lot of these stories. And a lot of people came and told me, you know, how she had helped them. And she also, this is something I don't dwell on much in the book, but she became like Syria's first Avon lady. And like, it was a way, yeah. way to have a life, a way to have a business. She was always trying to be more than just what life would have of her. So she's very ordinary and extraordinary, but she did. She had that Syrian quality where it is incredible in Syria. If you ever need help, 
how many people are willing to help you. And this is one of the things I wanted to focus on because I think 40 years of Assad regime has sort of tried to break down the solidarity between Syrians that they have to each other, right? It's been very good at pitting Syrians against Syrians in many ways, one of which is tenant and landlord laws, which impacted my family specifically. And I felt like Syrians were always sort of finding ways to hold their communities together, even in spite of that. And she had that quality. And I wanted, this is the Syria I would want readers to know about. And it's not an idealized one. I mean, everybody is flawed. My grandmother's flawed. You know, I don't think there's a non-flawed character in the book, but it's a much more realistic portrayal of Syria than what ISIS or the Assads would have us believe or understand. Yeah, there are very many sweet moments in your book. You mentioned Avon. You're right, she did not import Avon's makeup, as she didn't have much use for it, except for her red Dior lipstick. But she <laughs> loved the beautiful names that Avon had given its perfumes, like Charisma, Moonwind, Topaz, and Nearness. Yeah, yeah she loved perfume. I inherited her love for perfume, too. But I don't wear Avon perfume. I'm speaking with Alia Malik. She's an award-winning journalist and civil rights lawyer and author of the new book, The Home That Was Our Country, a memoir of Syria. The apartment building in which your grandparents lived in also plays a prominent role in your book. The Tahan building was completed in 1949, and your grandparents were the first occupants of the apartment that they had purchased. And you write that, like most buildings in Damascus, it had balconies on all sides. Coming and going were never anonymous in the neighborhood. At any given moment, someone was wringing laundry or watering plants or smoking a cigarette on a balcony. And from these extensions of people's homes, it was easy to have a conversation with a person in an adjacent building. And many relationships were built over the moments when neighbors found themselves outside. Uh, Since the invasion of Iraq, majority of Western academics and pundits Sectarianism, Sunni-Shia divide is the prism through which they try to understand the underlying social and political tensions in the Middle East. In the book, you write about this apartment building where, as I said, your grandparents Salma and Amin moved in. You write, like other buildings on their street and across Damascus, the inhabitants of Tahan were a microcosm of the people who made up new and old Syrian society. Tell us more about how this building exemplified the coexistence of diverse ethnic and religious groups in Damascus and the Syria you write about in your book. Syria for centuries has been a place of many ethnicities, many languages, many religions, many sects within those religions. Coexistence is not always flawless, but I think the fact that for millennia you have these people who've all been a part of the same place, I think it belies these notions of the Sunni Shia thing being the only way to look at the region. And so In the 1940s and 1950s, so she moves to Damascus, a new bride, right when ancient Syria becomes a new independent state. So many of the Syrian Jews have already left because of what's happening with Zionism and the idea of a Jewish nationalism, which makes it very awkward to be both Arab and Jewish, even though Arab Jews were something that had long been a part of the last 100 years of the aberration, not the rule. But otherwise, you know, Damascus was a place of Kurds and Armenians and Circassians and Turks and Arabs and Assyrians. You know, some of these are religious distinctions as much as they are also ethnic and linguistic distinctions. You had people who were, of course, Sunni and Alawite and Christian and still Jewish, you know, Catholic and Orthodox fully practicing five times a day, praying face-covered Muslims and completely secular Muslims. It was a place that still welcomed or a place where diversity or homogeneity wasn't a goal. 
as it becomes later in the Middle East, in large part because of certain ideas that were meant to serve, I'd say, like pan-Arab notions or pan-Arab politics or sort of Gulf politics. Your extended family stayed out of politics, but the fear of the regime permeated deep in the Syrian society. Even when you wanted to go to Syria when you were 17 years old, you were told not to look for trouble, basically. Mm-hmm. Something that struck me in the book was that the intelligence office, the Mohabarat, where you went to get your ID, was in a residential area. Can you talk about what it was like to live under such repressive regime? Let me preface this by saying I'm not a mental health expert. So all these are sort of just observations that I make as somebody who can move in and out of these spaces. But it seems to me that there's something inherently traumatizing about that. You know, it creates a trauma on a societal level, not just on an individual level. Because, like I mentioned earlier, it's infantilizing, it creates in you a constant fear, but it also means knowing that the body, the life of a person, it counts for nothing. Because, yes, you can be disappeared, you can be tortured, and there will be no justice for it. There's no way to confront the person that has done that to you. And so I do think that one of the ways to react to that is maybe to turn frustrations in on yourself or in on the people around you. So even when it seems like everything is normal, that apparatus is working on you. It, I, I believe it, it affects you to your core. And the thing is, it becomes a very effective currency. It's sort of like a cycle of abuse. So yes, you can go through a revolution, but you're seeing the militias you know, you're seeing ISIS reproduce like the same kinds of structures. Like these have now, these structures have now become part mm. of how we understand power and how you maintain um, and expand power. And and so, like, even if the rulers might change, those, I mean, I don't know, like, that those apparatuses would disappear right away. And that's something that will take a lot of work in the after, whenever the after comes to Syria. But I think for people to really understand what that's like, they need to live in the, in the skin of people who've gone through it, and Syrians aren't the only ones. You know, I read a lot about the Stasi in East Germany. I read about North Korea. You know, you can read about uh, Stalin. You know, you can probably start to read a little bit about Russian, you know, Putin's Russia. I mean, there are way, or Iran, you know, Iran under both, I mean, even under the Shah, right, there was the same kinds of disappearances and lack of tolerance for dissent. So Syria is not the only society to go through this, and unfortunately, I don't think it's going to be the last. So if people want to understand it, there are novels out there, there are books, there are films. I try to take a reader into what that, what that feels like in my own book. It is a terrible thing. Oh, look at, look at Pinochet in Chile and, you know, Argentina in, in the years of the, when all the leftists were being disappeared. I mean, so unfortunately this is, Fear is not, the use of fear is not only Middle Eastern or Syrian. And you have a passage in the book that brought home to me, what it meant for people to live under constant fear and surveillance. Of course, I don't want to take away the agency of ordinary people and people who fought and resisted in a variety of ways in Syria and elsewhere in the Middle East and other parts of the world. But you write about your aunt Clara, who had a, quote, Mm. balcony friend, a woman with whom she traded smiles and waves. They never spoke to each other, as there was a garden between them, you write. But while Clara was on her balcony, hanging clean diapers up to dry, the woman, your neighbor, neighbor, would be ironing the white shirts of her three college-aged boys. Soon Mm -hmm. Clara noticed that fewer and fewer shirts being ironed until there were none. Yeah, the sons were were taken. Those were in the early years of Assad regime, and and that's what I'm saying when I say like the trauma. Even if you're not directly affected, I mean, my great aunt who is American, you know, it's a long story how she ended up in Syria, but she watched that. That violence became some. I mean, so that's violence in her face. Even if she's not seeing them being taken or seeing them being beaten, they're reminders of the violence that has been committed and to the to the fact that these sorts of things can happen with impunity. So even when you're out on your balcony, you know, hanging up your laundry, you're being reminded of this. And that's why these things aren't studied enough, I think, when it comes to when we what we're talking about when we're talking about Syria. And this is why focusing only on 
ISIS or the regime or those who choose to carry weapons, like it's an, or, or just, you know, ridiculous concept of Sunni versus Shia is the only way to understand what's happening in the region is not going to help us put these places back together, even though they, they will never be what they were. Maybe they don't need to be what they were. But my point is, is like any of the, the diagnosis of the problem and the setting of the cure are completely uninformed if we're not looking at what this has meant for 40 years to live like this. I'm speaking with Alia Malik. She's an award-winning journalist and civil rights lawyer and author of the new book, The Home That Was Our Country, a memoir of Syria. The book covers modern Syria from the last of the Ottoman days to the present, and it weaves the lives of her family members with the geopolitical and economic history of Syria as a way to make these themes accessible and relatable. We'll talk more after a break. For those of you joining us now, I am Malihe Razozan, and my guest is Alia Malik. She's an award-winning journalist and author of the new book, The Home That Was Our Country, a memoir of Syria. You went back to Syria in April of 2011, soon after the start of the uprising. What prompted that decision? Why did you decide to go back? Well, it was, I mean, I wanted to be there in that moment of time. I knew it was going to be really big in the region. I was optimistic it would be big good, Um, but it was clear it was going to be seismic. And like I said, you know, there had been so much, you know, bad journalism or just incomplete journalism about the place that I wanted to be there at that moment to to and also you know and have this opportunity to be in Syria just as a regular person as opposed to somebody just coming in or out and the fact that I had been a human rights lawyer and then a journalist meant that you know these are occupations that are hazardous to your health in Syria so I was always welcome as like a returning Syrian for like a nice extended vacation but because we had the restoration of the house and its renovation I kind of had a reason to be in Syria that might have been other than journalism for you know for outside appearances um and so, yeah, I wanted to take take that chance and take that time. And, and, and who knew what would, you know, I didn't know if that opportunity would come again. Why did you decide to leave in 2013? Well, one of the ways that the regime, you know, speaking of fear and control, is that the consequences of an individual's dissent or opposition or misbehavior, which in my case would be, you know, practicing journalism, you know, are never born just by the individual engaged in those acts. One of the ways that they make, you know, because you might say, I'm willing to take these risks, I'm willing to risk imprisonment and torture and death for myself, but the regime won't necessarily confine it just to you. They, you know, they believe in collective punishment. They, they can hurt your family. And that's, you know, those are consequences that are, that many Syrians choose not to sign up the rest of their family for. And, you know, I had, you know, the restoration of the house had finished. You know, what was I doing there? This country had become kind of dangerous. You know, it began began to seem that the only reason I would be there would be for suspicious reasons, whether to be, you know, a journalist or to be a spy. You know, I am Syrian and American, also a journalist, somebody who had done human rights law before. Like, these were all things that were starting to add up to, to suspicion, um, and I didn't feel like I could ask people to to bear the cost of that, mm. whether they were sources or family. And also, I had personal reasons to come home—a family illness yeah. that at the time seemed, you know, 
that I was going to, you know, it was just important for me to come back to the U.S. also personally. But I wish, I, you know, now in retrospect, I wish I had stayed as long as, as, long as I really, really could have. Um, because now I'm probably not, probably not welcome in Syria because I've done this thing by writing a book. <laughs> Which, again, you know, should not be a problem. But, or maybe not. Or maybe I'm just a mosquito and they're not worried about me. As I said, there are so many sweet and beautiful moments in your book about Syria, about your uncles and aunts, your grandfather, especially your grandmother, your neighbors, the weddings that you went to, the celebrations that you were part of. Can you share some of those memorable moments that you have carried with you from Syria? Syria is a place of great civilization that has contributed to human patrimony for millennia. It's the place of the Bible, it's the place of the Quran, the place of, uh, I mean, incredible, I shouldn't even have to tell people this, but it is a place of incredible beauty. You know, every, you know all the major ancient uh in classical and medieval, all the civilizations have been through there. So it's this delightful mix of the Eastern Mediterranean and the Silk Road and, and Africa and the Arabian Gulf. So it means its people are super diverse. Its cuisine is, in, you know, absolutely incredible. Its architecture is kind of like, it's like a history book. It's, you know, and the people are just, you know, really wonderful and hospitable. All the, all the cliches and true. Damascus really does smell of jasmine, hmm. as trite as that is, and it's it's just such. It is a loss that should be mourned not only by Syrians. I mean, you know, the idea that a great city like Aleppo, you know, is kind of gone or destroyed, and the fact that you know half of a country's population has been displaced. These are these are tragedies that we. I mean, that should be breaking all of our hearts, not just Syrian hearts. In two thousand and thirteen, when you left Syria. You write, I was an optimist. Syria had been to me many things until that point, from that ever-present phantom in the diaspora to a destiny it seemed I had mercifully dodged as a teenager to a frequently visited and loved homeland, one that seemed to be shackled by a ruthless regime and the geopolitical fault lines that cradled it. So while... You were busy writing your book. You were also were reporting about the refugee crisis, about the plight of refugees that ended up in various countries in Europe. What do you think about the future of Syria? I mean, that's a really tough question. I don't have any powers of clairvoyance. I mean, look, what has happened to Syria is catastrophic, okay? You know, half the country is Place. The economy has kind of been destroyed. People committed crimes against each other. And most importantly, the regime has committed massive crimes. And then all the people that would succeed, not all the people, many of those who would succeed the regime have committed massive crimes against the Syrian people. So catastrophic, traumatized, and also it's a lesson in the idea that all lives don't matter, obviously, and that global indifference <laughs> You know, it's very much a reality Syrians understand. If I were to look for anything positive, if that's what you're asking me, and the few things that I can see is that in exile, in diaspora, and without the state there to sort of chaperone Syrians, there is an opportunity for Syrians to interact with each other in a way that they couldn't inside Syria. Mm. Even in the displaced people or refugee camps, you all of a sudden have Syrians from different parts of the country encountering each other for the first time. I think one of the reasons that the transportation infrastructure in Syria was not so great was by design. It's sort of a way to keep people separated from each other. And now you have people from the south who are meeting people from the north, for example, east and west, in those sorts of interactions that are no longer chaperoned by the state. There might be an opportunity to to get to know each other and to seek a kind of reconciliation, potentially, you know. But also, one of the downsides of that is I think there's going to be a divide, potentially, between who stayed and who left and, and who will be allowed to inherit the country. And as you see in other conflicts, you know, to some extent in Israel or Palestine, right, you know, there's a divide between who stayed and who left, and uh, potentially. And 
you know, I gave an interview to CBC, Canadian Broadcasting Company, last week, and the woman who was with me in the studio in New York is originally Czech, and she came up to me afterwards, and she said, this is exactly what happened in Czechoslovakia in many ways, and, and the people who tried to return after having been forced into exile were not able to re-enter the system. They were sort of purposely kept out by those who had stayed and those who had kind of inherited the country. And I think we have a lot of examples in other countries and the context and histories of other places that might give us a glimpse as to what, what lies ahead for Syria. What do you want people to come away with after reading this book? Well, hopefully in a, an appreciation for what a tragedy this is. Like I said, I don't want only Syrians to mourn the loss of Syria. This is a massive human tragedy. I think a lot of people have not been able to relate to Syrians, not be able to relate to the story. And now that Syrians are a political chip, you know, now that people are talking about Syrian refugees and Syrians as threats and Syrians as this and that, well, before politicians, for example, in, in Europe or the United States run around talking about Syrians in that way, maybe they should take a moment to understand, or, or their constituents should take a moment to understand what these places were, who these people are, what situation they're coming from, before they let their leaders, quote-unquote, tell them that they should fear these people or that these people are so unlike us that we, we cannot have empathy for what is happening. Alia Malik is an award-winning journalist and civil rights lawyer and the author of The Home That Was Our Country, A Memoir of Syria. You can read an excerpt of her new book at jadmagazine.com. For a status, I am Malihira Zazan, and thanks for listening. Thank you.